A very good evening and a hugely warm welcome. I'm Tricia Hillis, Canon Pastor here at St. Paul's, and it will be my very great pleasure to introduce our speakers in just a moment. But before I do that, for those of you who've not been to one of our events before, let me just explain a little of how it works. This evening, we'll ask, who am I? John Swinton and Ron Williams will each reflect on what it means to be a human being and its place in the very heart of divine life. So we've just set ourselves the smallest of tasks. John's going to draw deeply on pastoral theology in considering the experience of people who live with dementia and what that can teach us about our shared identity. Rowan will respond theologically, and then our conversation will be shaped by your questions, so please do send them in. If you have a question, please write it on the back of your program and hold it up to be collected. It helps if you write briefly and legibly, please. We'll collect questions until about 7.30. But we could also take your questions via Twitter using the hashtag beinghuman. If you'd like to send your question through your mobile, just type in your question, include the hashtag beinghuman, and we will find it. Your questions will be sent up here to the laptop, and we'll put as many as we can to John and to Rowan. We will end at 8 o'clock, and there's a bookstall here to our left, and you can buy both the speakers' books at handsome discounts, I should add and they've kindly both said that they'll sign for copies, copies for people afterwards. And so to our speakers. Professor John Swinton is the director of the Center for Spirituality, Health and Disability, and the chair in Divinity and Religious Studies at the University of Aberdeen. His theology is rooted in his background in nursing, ministry, and healthcare chaplaincy, and it grows from human encounter, one of the reasons it is so profound. His books include Dementia, Living in the Memories of God, which won the 2016 Michael Ramsey Prize for the best contemporary theological writing. I heard him speak first at a Greenbelt a couple of years ago in a packed tent in a wild storm one of an audience touched by his insight and his compassion. John has come down from Aberdeen to be with us, and we're hugely grateful. Rowan Williams, for anyone here who doesn't recognize our other speaker, was the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury, and before that, Archbishop of Wales, the beloved country. It seems that it's Celtic night tonight under the dome. Rowan is now the master of Magdalen College, Cambridge. He's been the professor of theology at Oxford University, taught at various theological colleges, written an astonishing number of books on an astonishing number of subjects, and has been a friend and a teacher to more people, directly and indirectly, than we could get even under this vast dome. He's been busy speaking all over the world and writing, 
and his latest books include Being Human, just published. It's the third in his wonderful trilogy following on from Being Christian and Being Disciples. We're really thankful to him for coming to join us this evening. Now, recently, one tweeter squealed with delight that this evening would bring together two of her favorite badass male theologians. <laughs> so with that delightful image in mind, would you please join me in welcoming both our speakers? Thank you. Well, good evening. I'm a badass theologian from, uh, well, today was very rainy Scotland, but uh, it's always very beautiful Scotland. It's very, uh, it's very nice to be here. I've never been in St. Paul's before, so as well as uh, looking forward to having conversations with you guys, I'm taking in the architecture. It's very, very beautiful. Um, the question of who am I is fascinating because we get our sources of who we are from so many places these days, from news, from social media, from our family. Working out who you are at the best of times is complicated. But it comes to a very sharp point when it comes to the issue of dementia. When you look at the research, people seem to fear dementia more than they fear cancer. And one of the reasons for that is because that sense that somehow your memory is who you are. I read an article the other day and a gentleman said something like this. He said, uh, living without memory or life without memory is no life at all. Uh, now, how he knows that, I'm not sure. But it does sum up something really important that we have this fear that somehow who we are, who I am, relates to what I remember myself to be. And so what's fascinating is the language that people use around people living with dementia. So people will say things like, she's not the person that she used to be. But what does that mean? If she's not the person she used to be, then who is she? Who is the person that's before you that you think you're talking to? If you think you're talking to someone who is no longer there, then why would you love them? Why would you care for them? But what does it mean to say, she or he's not the person they used to be, when none of us really are the people we used to be. So the question of who I am in relation to dementia is profoundly important. And I want to suggest that we need to expand our imagination and think differently about what dementia is and what it means to be the people that we are. Now, our imagination is not something that we just whip up by ourselves. Our imagination that contains the ideas, the concepts, the values, the plausibility structures that help us to make sense of the way the world is. And so our, our imagination is always bound by our culture, by the things that we've been taught. What I want to do tonight, and all of us want to do in different ways, is to expand our imagination, to bring in new possibilities in order that we can see things differently to move away from a pathological imagination that can only see loss and suffering and the disappearing self, and to open up space for something different, for new hopeful possibilities that come to us when we really engage with people and we really engage with the gospel and begin to rethink 
the whole issue of what it means to be who we are. So I want to give you four ways in which our culture thinks about uh, dementia. The first way that I want to think about is what we might describe as the autobiographical self. Now, the autobiographical self assumes that you are who you are as long as you can remember who you are. If you can no longer remember your own story, your autobiography, then you're not the person that you used to be. So people will use that kind of language. She's not the person she used to be. The autobiographical self assumes that continuity through time and history makes you the person that you are. And we all use that to some extent in our language and our assumptions that somehow we are what we remember ourselves to be. But of course that becomes profoundly problematic when we can no longer remember ourselves for who we used to be. When we can no longer remember very much about very much. When the autobiographical self is no longer available to us, it would seem that culturally at least we disappear. And so within the autobiographical self, who I am is who I remember myself to be. And that can become a really lonely place. When everybody around you thinks you're no longer there, where do you get your sense of value? Where do you get your sense of affirmation? Where do you get your sense of being loved? Now, the psychologist uh, Stephen Sabat, in a very interesting book he wrote on uh, Alzheimer's Beyond the Tangled Web, and in it he does a series of qualitative research interviews with people living with dementia, various uh, aspects in, within their journey. And the first thing that he notices is that even people in advanced states of dementia uh, can communicate. They may not be able to use the words in the, used to, the way they used to be. They may actually substitute words for uh, what they mean. But people can communicate. If we get time and space, we can find out things that are quite surprising. But he wants to push against this idea that we are who we are only if we remember who we are. And he develops a slightly different way of thinking about who we are. He says who we are has three dimensions. The first dimension, he says, which he calls self one, the first dimension is your experience in the world. If you are in the world, he says, experiencing things, feeling things, you may not be able to articulate them or cognate them in the way that you used to do, but you feel things. If you're in the world in that way, then you're fully in the world, he says. That yourself is secured by simply being in the world. So he puts to one side any ideas that somehow you lose your personhood because you forget certain things and places the fact of your existence as center stage to who you are. But then he says there's a second dimension or a second aspect of the self. And within that, that you have your biological self and your social self. So your biological self is just the, you know, your height, your weight, the, the things that come to you through your genetics and through your biological history. And within that context, you also have your social self, 
Your social self is the various roles that you take on as you encounter the world. So you become a teacher, a baker, a social worker, whatever it is, uh, or you become a Christian. That's another aspect of who you become in the midst of that. And part of that, you may also become uh, someone who lives with dementia. Now, what Stephen Sabat says is that dementia is highly stigmatized. It's something that people don't want. So a stigma is simply when you focus in on some one single aspect of an individual and pretend or assume that that's all there is. And because of that, once you begin to get into your dementia journey, people take you less seriously. Now he says within the second social and biological self, if people start to tell wrong stories about you, then you can counter that. So people may say, uh, he keeps losing his car keys because it's his dementia. And you can say, well, I've always lost my car keys. I need to get one of these bleepers since I was 22 or whatever it is. So there are always people will tell a negative story and then you are able to tell a counter story. So within the social self, who I am is who I articulate myself to be and who I am as a biological being in the world. But then Sabat says there's a third dimension of the self, and this is when it gets tricky for people with dementia, and maybe for all of us in different ways. Because the third dimension of the self is the value and the ways of naming that come to you from other people. So the third dimension of the self is definitely a communal and a social self. And again, because dementia is stigmatized, not necessarily because it's such a horrible thing, but because culturally, in our imagination, we think that certain things accompany dementia, dementia it's very difficult for that third self to find a valued place. Think about it. How do you come to value something? You know, something like a wedding ring, for example. What's the value of a wedding ring? It's not the metal that it's made of. It's the value that you give to it. It's a value that's ascribed to it. How can you have a friend, for example, if somebody doesn't give you the gift of friendship? And so within that self three, your value, your social worth, your experiences in the world are determined by your community. Now, when you look at the way that people's lives go with dementia, it's a very clearly documented fact. As soon as you have a diagnosis of dementia, before anything really significant happens to you, your friends drift away. And so by the time you get to the stage of uh, advanced dementia, very often people are socially isolated. People don't have friends, perhaps because all their friends have died or simply because nobody bothers to visit them. And so people will say things like, well, I don't really visit this person, A, because I don't get anything back, and because I, B, because I, I prefer to think about them the way they used to be. And again, you've got that movement into the autobiographical self. And so self three is profoundly important, as Stephen Sabat says. If we give people value, we hold on to them. If we take value away from them in that third dimension, then they can, in a real sense, become lost. So self three is a gift from our community. So who I am is who I am as I engage with other people. And there's something profoundly counter-cultural about that because the way in which we think about 
um, ourselves very often within Western cultures is that we're individuals, that we're insular, that we simply stand here, and we, as long as we don't impose upon the freedom of other people, then we can be as free as we want. Our identity is within us. That becomes highly problematic when we can't articulate things in the way we used to be. But within Sabat's model, our identity is held by our community. And so you get a resonance of that kind of African Ubuntu way of thinking about things. Not I think, therefore I am, but I am because we are together. And so there's a deep beauty in that, that somehow when you forget things, your community remembers them on your behalf. And I think Sabat's model is, is extremely important. The only problem is that our communities have a profound tendency to forget people with dementia. And the irony is that dementia, amongst other things, has to do with forgetting things. And yet, the very fact that your community abandons you means that the memory that is lost is a loss to the community. Any depreciation in the self is depreciation within the community. And so it's quite possible for people to lose themselves in that sense, unless the community holds them. Then if we turn to uh, theology, we have another different, and I think quite important, way of thinking about who we are, who we are and the, answering the question of who am I. Karl Barth talks about the idea of soteriological objectivism, which is a big word for an interesting concept. He says this. He says, the truth of our existence is simply this. Jesus has died and risen again for us. It's that and this alone which is to be proclaimed to us as true. In other words, everything that we are, everything that we gain, everything that we live for is done for us in Christ. And indeed, who we are, Paul is very clear in this, is who we are in Christ. So it's not my story that counts. It's not my memory that counts. It's Jesus' memory that counts. So we become who we are as we recognize and realize who we are in Christ. Let me give you an example. So before I became a, a Christian, I thought I was quite a decent fellow. I became a Christian and then suddenly I discover I'm a horrible sinner. I'm a Presbyterian, so we kind of hold on to that kind of thing. But everything I thought about myself turned out to be completely different when I discovered who I was in Christ. And more than that, Paul says in Colossians, I, uh, myself, who I am, is hidden from me. So even what I know about myself is hidden in Christ. Jesus always knows much more about me than I know about myself. So if we draw that way of thinking, that we're held because we are who we are in Christ, that's not to do with our memory, it's to do with God's memory, then we find hope and we find consolation in a very different way from the other ways of thinking about things. So Paul says in Romans 8, 38 39, he says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ, Jesus our Lord. There's nothing in what Paul says that says, unless you have dementia. So being in Christ 
is a primary hope and a primary source of who we are now and, always, and onwards into any journey into dementia that we may embark upon. But there's one more aspect of who we are that I wanted to think about. So we've got the autobiographical self, we've got the threefold self, we've got ourselves in Christ. The final self and final answer in some senses to who am I is the liturgical self. The self that we encounter as we engage in worship. Now those of us who have spent time with people living with advanced dementia know that phenomenon where people begin to uh, move to the rhythms of the spirit in worship. And so people who will oftentimes be disengaged for much of their lives, suddenly when they hear a prayer, begin to pray. Suddenly when they begin to hear music, they raise their hands and they participate in that worship. And there's a fantastic beauty in that. If you're a psychologist or a neurologist, you interpret that as simply well-ingrained neurological activity. But if you step into theology and begin to think about what's happening in that context, something completely different begins to emerge. Over time, as these people have engaged in the practices of worship, so their bodies have learned the shape and form of worship. So now at these times where they're not able to cognate and articulate in the way that sometimes religion assumes that they have to, their bodies continue to remember. Because one of the things we, think about, we forget about memory is memory is not just recall. Memory is to do with the way our body engages with the world. So as we engage with our spirituality, so we take the shape and form of our spirituality. And this is a key point. The movements that people engage in in worship are intentional. They're about something. They're about Jesus. Now, you can read somebody's body in lots of different ways, but I would suggest as Christians we need to realize there's an intentionality, that these gestures in the midst of worship are about Jesus. And if we take that time and if we reinterpret that experience, then being with people in that moment, even though that moment will not last, is a profound and a holy thing for us to do. So the liturgical self, the self that we're shaped and formed as we worship, gives us space to be with one another in different ways. So who I am, I am as I encounter the body of Jesus Christ through my body alongside of other bodies that make up Christ's body. One more thing before I, I sit down. One of the things that we need to think about both in terms of these last two perspectives of ourselves in Christ and the liturgical self is the issue of time. Because in order to see things properly, we need to slow down. One of the reasons why the autobiographical self is so popular and so difficult is because it requires us to do things and to push towards things, to remember things, to recall things, to push to the future. But God's time is different. God's time is much slower. God's time is much less predictable. And I'll leave you with one image before I, I go. 
Kusaka Kiyama, a Japanese theologian back in the 60s, wrote an essay called The Three Mile an Hour God. And in that, he um, pointed out that the average speed that human beings walk at is three miles per hour. So Jesus walked at three miles per hour. So Jesus, who is God, walks at three, three miles per hour. His point is, love has a speed, and that speed is a slow speed. When we slow down, when we engage with the liturgical self, when we recognize who we are in Christ, and when we enter into God's slow time, new possibilities emerge. In order to be with people with advanced dementia in particular, we need to be slow people. But really, in order to be with all of us or any of us, we need to slow down and look at one another and see one another. If we do that, then we begin to see that the question, who am I, is both rich, beautiful, difficult, but actually possible to look at in terms of positive terms. So I leave you with these four uh, models, and I leave you with the uh, three mile an hour God. Good evening, everyone. It's a very great privilege to be here alongside John this evening to share in this rich reflection which has been opened up for us and to address a question which I think is systematically misunderstood in any number of damaging ways in our present world. I haven't got four categories to share with you, but I've got three pictures that I want to start with, verbal pictures. One is a writer from the early 20th century reporting on a friend of his who was having various kinds of psychological troubles and was told by some encouraging and sympathetic companion to pull himself together and he replied, I don't think I have it together. The second, slightly longer, is a medieval Welsh story about a witch who has a child whom she curses. The curse she lays on the child is that it will never have a name unless she gives it to him. And she refuses to give it a name. That's a curse. That's the worst thing you could imagine happening. The story goes on to describe how the child and his magician uncle managed to trick the witch into giving the boy a name but that would take rather too long, and if anybody would like to hear the whole story, I'll be around afterwards. <laughs> the third little vignette I want to start with is a poem that some of you may have read, a poem written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian and activist in prison. It's a poem called, believe it or not, Who Am I? 
It begins with Bonhoeffer describing how he is seen by the other people in the concentration camp. They tell me, he says, that I walk out from my cell in the morning like the squire going to walk round his estate. Bonhoeffer came from a very well-to-do, upper-middle-class German family. His fiancée came from an aristocratic family in northern Germany. He was used to mixing with people of that class. And he carried some of that aristocratic ease and command even into prison. But, he says in the poem, when I'm back in my cell, it's another person that I see. I weep and I shiver. I live in terror of what's going to happen. I no longer know who I am. So, Bonhoeffer asks, which am I really? Am I this commanding presence in charge of the situation? Or am I the sorry wreck that I see in the mirror? And he ends with a very abrupt change of gear and simply says, well, you know who I am, God, and whatever I am, that's what you know. And that's it. End of poem. Those little pictures that I start with might help us, I think, focus from a slightly different angle on the themes that have already been laid out for us. I don't think I've got her together. That's to say, let's be very careful before we assume that there is some solid, given, real self, in inverted commas, underneath everything else which ideally is in control of the territory, shining its steady intellectual beam over the landscape. So that where that's not happening, we don't know what's going on. What about those who have to say, I haven't got any together? Second, the worst curse we can imagine is someone refusing to give a name, refusing to give recognition, to incorporate you into a community of speaking and listening, relating and exploring. And that's why I was so struck by the dimension of identity which John spoke of, which has to do with how we ought to, but often don't, hold the memory, the presence, the reality of another, and how we retreat from that responsibility in panic or in weakness when faced with the kind of crisis we've been reflecting on. And then third, Bonhoeffer's poem telling us something of what it might mean to live in trust that my identity was not something I owned, but something that was held for me, not even by any finite or earthly power, but by the energy that made me 
and makes me and sustains me. But as I've already hinted, there are a number of things that make these difficult recognitions even more difficult in our current culture. We quite like, as a culture, the language of the real self. We've all of us, to some extent, internalized a sort of existentialist feeling that there's the real self somewhere in here and all the roles that we're forced to play in society. And our liberation comes when we break free of what others expect and just be ourselves. Just be yourself, the three most unhelpful words in the English language sometimes. So we privilege this notion that there's some hard core of authenticity and integrity inside us. We are aware of the ways, quite rightly aware of the ways, in which so many of us can be lured into presenting a facade to the world, and we think, no, inside there's something truthful and real. But marry that up with the other great modern obsession, which is about my will and my autonomy, and you have a rather problematic mixture. You have a culture which is going to find it very, very difficult indeed to cope with those dimensions of unavoidable dependence in human life. And so many of our controversies, so many of our anxieties in contemporary society seem to come back to that question. Can we cope with the idea of being dependent? Can we recognize that we receive what we are? We don't make it for ourselves. Can we recognize that we are not, in any sense, self-made people? And that whatever profound anxieties arise in us when we think of our future in terms of sickness, decline, dementia, they are on a spectrum of dependence. They're not something completely different from the rest of our human experience. And recognizing that they are just versions of what we are used to anyway is perhaps one way of slightly softening the stigma and the terror that surrounds the idea of losing our grip. Interesting, isn't it, that that's the kind of phrase we use. He or she is losing their grip. As if gripping reality Think of it, you know, the tight fist, as if that were the essence of being a self, rather than the open hand that receives. Centuries ago, when St. Augustine was reflecting on the different ways in which the human self worked, he had a lot to say about memory and its importance, indeed to the, the point in one of his works of saying, memory and spirit cover the same ground. But what he doesn't want to do is set up our memory and our understanding and our wanting 
as independent, self-motivated, self-perpetuating things. The deeper you dig, says Augustine, into your thinking and your feeling, your remembering, your hoping, your wanting, your understanding, the deeper you dig, the more you see how everything is responsive, generated in you by what's given, not something generated out of your own bowels. Now, all of this suggests, I think rightly suggests, that identity is a fragile construct. And personal experience, clinical experience, as well as philosophical and theological reflection are going to underline that for us. A fragile construct where many lines intersect to hold together something that has some sort of continuity, a body that tries to make sense of itself. What John's called the autobiographical self plays a very significant role for practically all of us in this. But it's only one dimension of the whole. And that whole, as we've been very forcefully reminded, that whole has to do with the body we are, occupying the place we occupy within a network of relationships. Without that network, we're not there. That's where, as some writers have said, and I've tried to discuss this a bit myself here and there, um, there's a difference between being an individual which has a little bit of a billiard ball feel about it, and being a person, that is, being and becoming who we are in the network of relation. But to accept that, we've got to accept that dependence is part of it. And for the Christian believer, that dependence is ultimately dependence on what I'd like to call a comprehending and comprehensive gaze. We are held in a look, a divine look, a divine, can we say, contemplation of us, which, leaving nothing out, judging and rejecting nothing of us, holds us. A comprehending, that is, an empathetic and interior, awareness, a comprehensive, an inclusive vision of who we are. When in the gospel we're told that Jesus knew what was in human beings, John's gospel, then that gives us some clue to exactly that identity in Christ we've already heard of. There is for all of us a gaze, a look, an initiative, a gift, that holds us in that way. And I know it's not quite what the Greek means, but when in the old translation of the Bible we're told that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not, I feel that's a kind of marker of the difference between good and evil. Darkness doesn't comprehend, doesn't take in hold, penetrate compassionately. 
light comprehends. That's part of the imagery, it seems, of the beginning of the gospel. So finally, if that is how selves are held together, the comprehending, comprehensive gaze, and that gaze is ultimately God's own perception of, or as I suggested, contemplation of the world God has made. We who are charged with being the body of Christ in the world, we have been called into the fellowship of God's act and God's vision, then the task before us is how our gaze on one another comes to be comprehending and comprehensive. We often back away from the difficulties of mental health issues, of dementia, of incapacity, because we feel we haven't got the special skills or training or whatever. But one of the things that John's work has done for many of us, I think, is simply to underline that actually some of this is not rocket science. For those whose inner world is unstable or fragmented, the response needs to be patient, time-taking. It needs to be willing not to ignore, to cope with the unexpected and the unwelcome, and to sit with it. And perhaps above all, it has to arise out of an awareness of one's own fractures, one's own dependency. It's not that over there, there are some poor, dependent, demented, incompetent selves upon whom I lavish my compassion. It's about understanding that actually, I'm not sure I have it together. Actually, I don't know who I am independently of the risk and the work of sustaining relation, receiving what I'm given, as well as giving what I've received. And perhaps at the very root of it all is the question of how we learn as religious believers or indeed as not very religious, not very believers, how to be creatures, how to understand that we're finite and fragile and that's all right, that's all right. We do not have to impose our sovereign will on ourselves and defend our territories. We can actually be free enough to receive as well as give. And perhaps when we start understanding that, we start understanding this whole question of identity differently. It's been said that the, the Englishman claims to be a self-made man, thereby relieving God of a terrible responsibility. But the responsibility that we truly have is not to make ourselves and sustain ourselves. It's to receive the creative gift of life that's around us and learn how to use it so that others come alive. And in that exchange, in that relation, I find who I am 
I find who you are, you find who you are, you find who I am. Uncertain, unfinished always, laborious, but also joyful, and undergirded by that sense of the unwavering, comprehending, comprehensive gaze. God's contemplation of what God has made. Thank you. Unsurprisingly, many questions have already come in. So thank you to those who've already sent your questions in. If you're still waiting to do so, please don't forget to write out your question on your program and hold it up. Someone will come and collect it from you or indeed tweet to us and use the hashtag being human. I was aware that um, last week I spent some time in Paris and one of the things that we did was we visited the Memorial de la Shoah and uh, it captures the names of 76,000 French Jews who were deported for extermination, most of whom were sent to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And I was really struck there, aware that we were going to be sharing in this conversation about the place of collective memory and the duty and responsibility for the community to remember when individuals either no longer can or indeed have been silenced. I wonder what examples you would speak to of, of collective memory and what that needs to hold and how best it is held. Who would like to go first? Well, one of the interesting things in relation to, uh, to memory is that we kind of assume that memory is always within our own heads. Right? So it's something you, you work with inside yourself and then bringing things to the forward, looking for the future. And somehow if you lose that ability, then you lose your memory. But actually when you think about it, your memory is all over the place. I'm taking notes, my memory is there. You've got a computer, your memory is there. If I want to find out things about my past, I have to ask my mother because I can't remember what it was like when I was five years old. So constantly your memory is being held by people outside of your, yourself. So the idea that your memory is within your head is, is true to an extent, but actually when you think about it, it's much, much broader, much more interesting. The key is really whether the memories that are held beyond yourself are accurate and are good memories. Uh, and the problem in relation to dementia is that very often they're not accurate. So I have a colleague who uh, has created a memory box. She hasn't got dementia. And in, in, the, in the memory box, she's put lots of things, including the music that she wants to have played when she, if she ever ends up with dementia. And in that, she has uh, things like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. Uh, because our biggest fear in relation to going into care home is that people play, insist that she, she listens to Scottish country dance music. <laughs> so she Surely Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> so she's, uh, she's making provision. 
But it's important because that actually that's a profound statement to that new community with what she likes and what she doesn't like, and I think that's important. However, you also have to be careful because the community will remember certain things about you, but you change. Mm. You know, all of us change all the time, and if, if all you ever rem all you ever are doing when you're thinking about somebody is thinking about how they used to be, then the possibility of a changed and positive future becomes. Uh, Dissonant and perhaps not possible at all. So it's getting that tension between the power of communal memory, which is important but can be flawed, and the possibility of hopeful memories for the future. Yes, yeah, so that, that makes enormous sense to me in terms of um, the way in which we so often find it difficult to think of a real future for people with, with dementia, a relationship that genuinely unfolds even if it unfolds in ways we're not used to or find easy to cope with. But uh, Trish, your original question had something to do with collective memory. And I, I find this a, a really interesting subject because it seems to me that on the one hand, it is absolutely essential that we do record responsibly, sensitively people's recollections. My most vivid memory, I think, of that is in um, a visit to South Africa a few years ago. And in Cape Town, there is a smallish museum commemorating District 6 in Cape Town. A few of you may just recognize that. In the 1950s, this was one of the very um, vital, very active multiracial areas in Cape Town that was effectively cleaned out by the apartheid government. And this wonderful little museum is simply a collection of very prosaic photographs and billboards and bits and pieces of the ordinary fabric of life in this community. And it was utterly wonderful. It was, it was a beautiful, almost transcendent thing. It simply celebrated the ordinariness of a life that had been lost but which people had not wanted to, to forget as if it had never been. It was a way of honoring something. Mm. That's, that's hugely important. And then you're on the, the knife edge where for some communities at some points, memory can be weaponized. This is what happened. This is what was done to us. This is where we have to dig our heels in because any sign of weakness and we'll be at people's mercy again. Again, a visit some years ago to um, Bosnia and visiting there one particular building where there was a whole series of images of appalling atrocities that had been visited on one of the local communities by another. I won't say which is which because it could be true of any of them. And I thought the one thing people are digesting as they come in here is we have always been victims, and so we must always fight back. And that's what I mean by weaponizing memory. That somehow reduced the identity of the community in question. It shrank it. Instead of saying, well, that's what happened, and now we have the question, what do we do with it? What new relations can we build? All of that was tidied away in favor of, this is where we stand. We can never be anything other than victims 
who deserve recompense. And that, you know, that's drawing a line. So the positive uses, the negative uses of collective memory are a very complicated area. Picking up on that issue, really, of uh, I would use the, the term power and, and memory, um, but bringing that to a, a very much more individual uh, approach, a couple of people have asked, um, what might be the implications for someone in the formation of autobiographical self when physical dependence means that their story is given and articulated by and through others? And also is, and this is picking up on a phrase that is certainly in your writing, John, if, is saying we're held in the memory of God an easy way out? If God holds those with dementia, does that mean others don't have to? And that we can just ignore stigma and malignant social psychology because God's got it. <laughs> well, perhaps I can just have a word on that latter one. I think the, the answer has to be no in any theological perspective, simply because the one thing we're not allowed to do as believers in the tradition we stand in is to say, God does it so we don't have to. That's only true of the atonement. <laughs> what we have to do is to grow into God-likeness. That's the gift we're given. Therefore, granted that God's gaze doesn't falter, granted that people do not fall out of the hands of, of God, how that becomes real and transforming in this life, in this context, does depend to a significant extent on us and our capacity to realize that God-likeness, if you like. So I, th I think that's, that's an answer which would have to be given from any point in the that's theological that's spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's really, really helpful and clear. Um, but if, if I can kind of get to that question through a slightly convoluted route. The, um, one of the things I do at the University of Aberdeen is I'm the master of Christ College. Now Christ College is a place where uh, uh, training ministers for the Church of Scotland uh, uh, come to, to be trained obviously. So I'm responsible for them in terms of pastoral care. Uh, and one of the interesting things in relation to trainee ministers, almost to a man and to a woman, with one or two exceptions, is they're really, really interested in things to do with young people, community, families. But when it comes to care of the elderly, and, and then when it comes to uh, looking after and being with people with dementia, that's something that the pastoral care team can do. So they kind of cut themselves off from that and focus on this area. And I, I think a lot about why that is. And I think it's because very often we place uh, uh, being alongside people with dementia in the wrong category, we place it in the category of pastoral care. Now, of course, that's appropriate because all of us need to be cared for. Um, but I think the most appropriate and the most challenging place to put uh, dementia is in uh, relation to discipleship. Because the question for me would be, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ with a vocation and a calling from God and to have advanced dementia. 
Because surely you don't cease to be a disciple with a vacation from God simply because you get some brain damage. That would make no sense because that would mean like uh, if I walked out here and tumbled down St. Paul's stairs, at the top of the stairs I'd be a disciple, but at the bottom of the stairs I'd had, I'd had nothing. And uh, that would be an odd thing for God to do. So, but if you place um, discipleship as your central focus in relation to uh, uh, people living with dementia, then you've got a whole different set of questions which are much more complicated, much more difficult, but actually much more appropriate if you really do believe that the body of Christ includes absolutely everybody. Yeah. I, I think that that theme of discipleship is, is a key one because actually back in the 17th century, you have a writer like Augustine Baker, the um, Anglo-Welsh Roman Catholic writer, who encourages you to think of futures that you really would not like to be stuck with. And he says, for your spiritual good, start imagining what it might be like to be dependent, to be helpless, to be disabled, to lose your mind. Just think about it, he says, and get used to the thought. You will still be the person God loves and the person God calls in that state. That's 17th century, long before we started thinking about these yeah, categories. Yeah, yeah. But it's as if already people are waking up to that. Mm -hmm. but I just wanted to come back briefly on, on the power question because it's, it's something that applies not only, I think, to issues of mental health but physical health. People's sense that their Ownership isn't quite the right word, but let's use it for the moment. That ownership of their own bodies, their own selfhood, is taken away. Um, Gillian Rose, in her wonderful memoir about her last year or so with ovarian cancer, mentions a doctor talking about um, my cancer. <laughs> Excuse me, this is actually mine. I'm the one who's dying here. And the the insult, the offense that we offer, sometimes by professional attitudes that kidnap people's sense of themselves, that's, that's something which, whether in the pastoral profession, the medical, social work profession, we have to keep, a, I think, a relentless eye on. Are we taking agency away? Are we taking presence and ownership away? Because frequently the context we work in do just that, uh, including in the church. Mm. There are several questions about that latter point, which we will come to. Um, throwing in this question then, someone's asking, what is the self that Jesus said we would find if we lose ourself? <laughs> I'm lost. <laughs> hmm. I think that Jesus, who doesn't actually use the word self as such, Jesus is talking about what makes us alive. Our passionate desire to save our lives and protect us ourselves is actually something that stops us living fully in relation with and presence to the source of all our life. That's what's got to go that um, passion to cling on. And what happens then, it's not that we suddenly discover a mysterious new self, but that we start living. 
with all that means in terms of our relatedness to one another and to God. So it's about release, I think, isn't it, in some sense? Well, I just always assumed that it has to do with um, the self that you thought you were turns out to be different, and so you discover yourself as you lose yourself, which means you discover yourself as you lose these false perceptions about who you are and what's significant and, and, what, and the things that you assume and discover uh, what it means to live life in all of its fullness, which, which Jesus claims to bring and hopefully does bring. Can I focus in, though, on this question of loss? Because that, that is something that you, particularly in your book, talk about a, a model of, of loss as opposed to a, a model of what remains. Um, and just picking up on someone's question here, which is very uh, much takes us to the heart of experience. So they write that the sudden onset of a life-altering disability brings enormous grief in the life we've lost, the activities we've loved, and our very identity. People try to make us feel better by denying the loss. How do we stop them cheering us up and actually show some empathy? Well, I, 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 the way I would... I mean, I, I, I think it's really, really important to think differently about dementia and very important to recognize these hidden hopeful aspects. I mean, I think that's fundamental. But also, grief and loss is, is very much a part of the journey for an individual and for uh, a community. Uh, and I think in relation to loss, the most faithful way to do that is to reclaim lament. I think we need to think seriously about a, why God gives us more psalms of lament in the psalms than anybody else, in the, any other kind of psalm, and b, why we so are so reluctant to to use the some lament psalms. And when you begin to read the lament psalms through the the experience of dementia, it's really interesting. If it's some, Psalm 88 that talks about, you know, what do I do in the land of forgetfulness? And, and the articulation of hopelessness that you get in that psalm is precisely the way that many people with dementia feel, and many people walking alongside people feel at times. But it's a prayer. It's a prayer to God, so therefore it's not a prayer into the, to emptiness. It's a prayer that opens up uh, a real human experience gives us language to articulate that in real and honest ways. And so the psalmist, if you look at the way the, way the psalms run, uh, the psalmist says things like, God smashed the Babylonian baby's heads off the rocks. That's not your normal prayer on a Sunday morning, but we have permission to say that. The most outrageous things that we have, always within the, the, the context of prayer, and the way that most of the Psalms run is you get that big articulation of brokenness, anger, hurt, despair, but then a little turning point in the middle where suddenly, for whatever reason, the Psalmist discovers God's unchanging love. Nothing changes. The disaster's still there. The suffering's still there. But because he discovers God's unchanging love, it, it, something shifts, and he moves into uh, worship. And I think that pattern... It's, it's helpful for us as we th begin to ritualize some aspects of, of dementia. Because one of the things I, I don't see in the pastoral literature, literature is the significance of ritual, the way that we can move through different transitional phases through uh, different rituals, which are really profoundly important for how we make sense of the world. Um, but the Psalms of Lament have a potential to open up that space where we can be honest, but hopeful and worshipful. 
Yes, I, I agree entirely about that. And the only thing I'd want to add is, I think, a recognition that loss is just one of those things that happens to human beings. It's part of living in time. We lose each moment. That's what it means to, to grow in time. It's an illusion to imagine that somehow we can create for ourselves a situation in which we never lose anything. Important choices involve losses of potential. Important steps forward and deepenings of our experience involve loss. And once again, I think we have to remember it's a spectrum. It's not that there's some sort of comfortable, protected life here and then this terrible world of loss somewhere else, but that we need to be thinking about ourselves as beings who will lose aspects of our precious selves as we evolve. And thinking about how we cope with that, how we move through it, and like my 17th century chap, thinking how would I cope with an even more challenging level of loss? Just, you know, think about it. Don't, don't push it away. And certainly, don't, don't think about being cheered up. Yeah. Someone asks about um, the liturgical self, which was mentioned, and you were talking just now about ritual too. Um, what might that look like for a non-religious person? Uh, and I wonder whether the place of ritual then becomes particularly appropriate, but what would the two of you say? I, d I don't think liturgy is, is just for, for church. And one of the difficulties we often face in our society is that we don't quite know how to articulate big shared moments of loss or celebration sometimes, which is why people still rather reluctantly turn up in church for such events of corporate recognition, mm. even though they don't entirely know what, what they're there for. Mm. But they need a pattern of transition, I think, some words, some actions that will hold them through a process of getting from A to B. And I think it's, it's a very interesting question which has been addressed by somebody like um, Andrew Shanks who used to work at Manchester Cathedral, how a secular society or a secular person can appropriate some aspects of transitional ritual. And when people these days work at how you might conduct secular funerals and so forth. They are trying to find liturgical identities of a kind there. Mm -hmm. So it's not utterly impossible. I, th I think I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think that there are uniquely rich resources in the religious framework in this respect. But that doesn't mean that we cling on to them or think they're the only possible vehicles. Can I ask two questions together? At the resurrection, when all things are made new, will our memories lost to dementia be restored? Given that Jesus healed, could our intended self in Christ be one of wholeness? So what is wholeness? That's a very, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question, actually. I, I'm drawn to, to think about what Tom Wright says in, in his book, Surprised by Hope, about 
the nature of the, the resurrection body. And he, he points out that in, uh, when Paul talks about the resurrection body in uh, Corinthians, he doesn't talk about uh, replacement. He talks about transformation, that there is both continuity and discontinuity in relation to uh, the resurrection body. And he says the same thing. You can see when the, the new Jerusalem comes down upon the old Jerusalem, it's, it's not replacement, it's, it's transformation. And so I guess there, there may be a sense in which certain things would be renewed, your memory may be renewed. So there'd be continuity, continuity at that level, but there'd also be discontinuity because it may be that in heaven we don't use memory. And so that may be a pre-heaven question. So we may turn up in heaven and find that actually there's no such thing as memory. <laughs> Whatever that might look like. Right? So I'll talk about heaven as speculative, but my sense would be maybe, maybe certain memories would be restored. Maybe it depends on what heaven is, what the intention is, how we function, what our, what our resurrection bodies look like, what is transformed, what remains the same which is a wishy-washy answer, but I think it's an interesting question. It, yes, I mean, it, it is um, notoriously difficult to talk about heaven not having been there, and we're, we're all stuck with that. Speak but for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I have a place <laughs> reserved, actually. <laughs> when you feel this your whole me. ecclesiastical career just... <laughs> Please do continue. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> it does seem to me, though, that what we hope for in, in the face of God is a kind of, well, again, comprehending, comprehensive enlightenment. We, insofar as I ever think about what it would be like to be fully in the presence of God, it seems to me to have something to do with seeing myself as fully, as candidly, and as compassionately as God sees me. Now, how far that includes memory, I, I really don't know. I suppose in some sense it must. But it's that sense of being laid bare and yet loved, which I think is intrinsic to the meeting with God we pray for. And in contrast, I think, hell would be, and I'm not committing myself, unlike the Pope, not committing myself on this subject, um, hell would be being stuck with my own memories with nothing else at all. Gosh. Mm. Imagine, that, you know, that hell is not other people, Sartre was wrong about that, hell is me left completely to myself with nothing but my memories to feed on, imagine. Yeah, very good. I'm going to ask a couple of questions which are to do with practice, how we are the body of Christ together, which both of you mentioned. The um, question here which was saying, uh, this concept of our identity being in Christ um, that it's not determined by our cognitive function is utterly radical and countercultural. If as Christians we believe this, why are we not consistently leading the way in dementia care? So a real practice uh, question. And while you're thinking about that, 
a question saying, the church largely sees disabled people as broken and needing healing to be spoken about rather than listened to, or objects for pastoral care, just as you were saying, rather than agents of change. How do we create a church which listens to and learns from lived experience? So what is church already doing, and what's the quality of that? I suppose that the church, like most other human bodies, panics easily about those persons and situations where it doesn't feel on top of the situation in control. And that's why its record in handling issues around mental health is frequently so, so dismal. And sometimes the kind of busy, positive, articulate, hyperactive Christianity that a lot of people seem to like doesn't make it any easier for us to come to terms with, with all of this. But thinking of the other question about, um, again, how people are seen as agents of change, not recipients of um, loving kindness from others, there was a very, very good book some years ago by um, a Welsh priest I know very well called John Gillibrand. It's called, um, I think, Disabled Society, Disabled Church. It's written out of John's experience as the parent of um, a child who was quite severely on the autistic spectrum. It looked at the ways in which the church failed again and again to, to handle the challenge of his own family life as a, as a priest, not just as a member of a congregation. It looked at the need for the church to stop thinking of itself as, as having its act together. The church recognizing its own weakness and fear and brokenness and that that was for him part of, part of what would release the church to be more authentically alongside well, not just to be alongside, no, no, for the church to be a community where people belonged who had what we call disabilities. If we recognize the disability, we share. And a wonderful remark which stayed with me for years by Francis Young, um, one of my very favorite people as well as theologians. Francis, again, who had um, spent, spent many, many years caring for a son with serious learning challenges. She wrote somewhere that the more she worked in building her relationship with her son, the more she came to feel, I'm the one who has the learning difficulties. It's difficult to learn how this person is and communicates. But you know, I'm, I'm the one with the difficulties here. If the church were a bit more able to say something like that, perhaps. I don't know. Mm. What would she say, John? I think that we haven't really thought about the uh, richness that the experience of disability in general and of dementia in particular can actually give to our understandings of what community is and how the spiritual gifts within the community function. In other words, we, we tend to, I think, uh, uh, work on a, a, a medicalized model 
within which we see this as a series of problems that need to be solved. And dementia is a, a pastoral issue within which we may visit, but we actually don't take the challenge into the center of our ministry and begin to rethink certain key things. And so, for example, if we think about um, spiritual gifts. So I was talking to a friend of mine who, who was a, a hospital chaplain, and she was talking to me about this woman she went to, to visit. Um, uh, she had quite advanced dementia. Uh, and so she went into the, the, the ward and uh, sat down with her and said, Beatrice, I'd, I'd like to pray with you. And so uh, she didn't get any response from this woman. And so she began to, she, to cross her hands or clasp her hands together and began to pray. And it, she started with the Lord's Prayer. And as soon as she said the Lord's Prayer, Beatrice started to pray. And she prayed and she prayed and she prayed. She couldn't quite work out what it was that she was saying, but she was clearly engaged in something. There was an intentionality about that. And eventually after 15 minutes, the, the chaplain had to, to close the prayer. Now, the thing about that is, presumably prayer changes things. So presumably when Beatrice prays, something within creation shifts. Something within creation is heard by God and something happens in that sense. Now, how often do we think about uh, people with dementia as prayer warriors, as people who we should sit down and pray with in order to uh, enable their giftings, even if it's through the spirit that talks with groans that we cannot understand, to participate in the upbuilding of the body of Christ. If we can begin to think that way and in and around spiritual gifts and in and around what it is we're supposed to be doing when we visit people, then I think maybe, maybe we can be people, a group of people who can model something different. But we need to, I think, be true to the things that we believe and allow these things that we believe to change the way that we practice. And if we do that, uh, it's, it's, change can come. And if we don't just say, well, we've got enough problems doing this without having to do that, and realizing that doing that actually might enable you to do this, then things might change. I'd like to take us to a question which um, takes us to some very challenging places in terms of how we evaluate contribution. And uh, our questioner asks that dementia can end in the cruelest of deaths with an often long and tormented decline leading to this. So should individuals have the choice to end their lives should this be their wish? Well, um, I find this very, very hard to answer. I, I can't myself make sense of the idea that I have the freedom to plan the end of my life in that sense because I don't know what gifts God may give or what gifts God may want to give through me, whatever else is going on. That's where I stand and I, I can't make sense of my life, my hopes, or my fears otherwise. Therefore, I find it very hard to say that people should plan to end their lives. And I know saying that, I've said something which generalizes about 
and endlessly painful and costly set of things for all sorts of people, for people living with sickness, dementia or whatever, and those living alongside them. I'm not persuaded that we ought to legalize physician-assisted dying. I am persuaded that we need to challenge some of the, what I've sometimes called the machismo of a medical profession which wants to preserve life at all costs, because that's a rather different issue. But um, I, f I find it hard, I find it hard. I was helped recently by reading um, a very, very moving book by Catherine Mannix called With the End in Mind, which is essentially about palliative care. And I find it one of the most moving books I've read in the last year or so, which addressed some of the fears people have, and that's where we have to come in at it. Why are people so very afraid of this? Are there ways of holding them through that fear? And that's the practical question, I think. People will make the decisions they make and they won't necessarily wait for the church to tell them about it. But meanwhile, can we at least address that level of fear? Does that level of fear resonate with your experience with people? Well, let me, let me, let me get that question a slightly different way. The, um, there's a really interesting psychotherapist who works at the Sloan Kettering uh, hospital in New York called William Breitbart. And he works, he specializes in end-of-life care. He doesn't specialize in dementia care, but you'll see where I'm going with this. Um, and he noticed that he was getting a, an increasing number of requests for physician-assisted suicide. Now, the way that he addressed that was, um, he was, a, he was a, a secular Jew, so he had, he had no uh, particular interest in religion, but he uh, had read Viktor Frankl and Viktor Frankl's idea of, of that uh, people can cope with most things if they have a meaning in their lives. And so he set up spirituality, meaning-centered groups for people at the end of their lives. And in the States, the end of their lives means you've got to have a doctor to say you're, you're going to die within, I think it's eight, six or eight weeks, something like that. And so these ran over a period of time. And what he discovered was that people went into these groups thinking that they were there was no meaning or purpose in their lives, that they were going to be a burden to uh, their families, and that there was simply no point in continuing. By the time they'd shared their experiences, shared their narratives in these meaning-centered groups, uh, the request for physician-assisted suicide pretty well stopped for them. So rather than addressing the ethical question, he created a, a physical space within which he addressed the issues for the people, and the, the ethical question didn't come to the fore. My sense is that before we move to answering that particular question, we need to think seriously about what kind of communities we can create that can begin to enable people to find meaning and purpose, even in the midst of uh, very difficult changes. Um, uh, I think that's the place to begin, and then the question itself will, would emerge again at the end of that process, but what the answer would be may be different to what we think. A question for both of you. What can a person with dementia teach me then about being? What can such a person teach me about God? 
Well, everybody with dementia is differently, so I don't think there's not such a thing as dementia or there's not such a thing as a representation in that sense. I get, but I guess the experience that people go through in relation to dementia teaches us about the significance of contingency, that we are inevitably dependent beings, that we inevitably uh, are, uh, depend on one another. It's just at certain points in time you don't notice it. But you know, when, it, when you're beginning to experience something like an ongoing condition like dementia, then it's obvious. And you can either say uh, that's something that takes away your dignity, or you can just say, or you can say it's something that brings to the fore your creaturehood and helps us to see, see, see that dependency as a constructive, natural part of being a human being. And I think a further dim dimension of that is, quite simply, it's an invitation patiently to enter into the present moment with someone. Yeah. So instead of thinking, you know, that's the fifth time they've said that, just receive it, yeah. sit with it as it is. Yeah. And that entry into the moment becomes part of the grace that you receive. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. That's, I guess, that's, a, that's a tremendous point. And it's interesting when you think about what kind of person you have to be to be with somebody, and to actually be with somebody in that situation. And then place that alongside what Paul says about the nature of love, being patient and kind and perseverance and not holding, all of these things. So really what, we're discover, what you discover is the physical nature of love. The physical and time sure. entering nature of love. Can I ask just one last question before I open out to you to, to give us your final thoughts? Um, someone asks about place, actually, the significance of place as well as time. Um, and they put it this way, that if I go to my parents' homeland in Africa, I'm considered too English. Here in the UK, certain people don't accept me as a person of colour. Can you say something about place and the way it shapes and defines our identity and who we are? That's such an interesting question. I think that it has something to do with, again, the fact that as we grow, we don't just grow with thoughts inside our heads. We find our way around. We learn how to be human by moving in a particular landscape, the landscape of the room we live in, the house we live in. We, we don't exist in midair. We become who we are as we learn how to walk so as not to bump into that wall or trip over that stool. Mm. Um, I've sometimes said the most important thing we, we know about theories of mind is that we learn them as babies trying to avoid things to bump into. You know, that, that's how mind begins to get a grip on us. We map the world. So our first maps are hugely significant for us. And they imprint in ways that are much deeper than just you know, the memories we can call to mind. So I think it is, it is important to know something of one's roots as one grows. And that's, of course, one of the huge problems that faces people who are literally displaced as an unprecedented number of people are in our world at the moment and why we we need far far more patience and understanding than we commonly show for those 
who are displaced in our midst. We underrate the trauma of being uprooted. We, we're impatient with people who don't seem to want, want to settle with us. A bit, of, um, a bit of realism about how deep place goes wouldn't do us any harm here. And yet, human beings have always been travelers as well. And one of the very interesting polarities that some anthropologists have written about is the way in which our human mind is poised between what this writer calls refuge and prospect. There's the background we, you know, we slip back towards. There's the horizon we want to go towards. Mm. We're poised with that, but both are part of who we are as human. Do you want to add anything? You talked about music and the context for, for personhood and how that sense of place and what contributes to our setting uh, influences who we are. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the only thing I would add is it must be terrible to, for people to mistake you to be for being English. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll, uh, I'll vote for that. <laughs> so, sitting between the Scotsman and the Welshman, <laughs> I'll say a huge thank you to all of you for, for coming, for the questions that you've shared, uh, for listening and participating so attentively. Uh, huge thanks to the two of you for coming to join us and for the conversation, uh, which is both human and divine. We're really grateful. So to say thank you and to remind you that as we close, um, there is opportunity if you wish to, to make your way and pick up uh, books uh, that both our speakers have been uh, so kind to bring here and to also to sign for us. So if having picked up a book, you'd like to then uh, make your way, you'd be very warmly welcome. So would you please join me in saying a huge thank you. Thank you.